Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. The philosophy behind the podcast is in business. It's all about making a positive impact every day. And there's no bigger factor in continuing to make that impact in businesses across the world than the productivity that they're able to achieve, their workforce, their employees, how they work, how they collaborate, driving increased productivity. And we know with all of the challenges and all of the changes in the dynamic of the workplace over the last two years with the global pandemic, a lot of challenges to maintaining or building productivity in the workplace. And research shows that there is pessimism um, across a, a vast majority of workers. A lot of them don't feel very productive. I've seen research showing that, gosh, less than 10% feel like they're really optimally productive. So tools and systems and approaches to getting those teams to work better together can have a profound impact on growth. And I'm really excited with the guest today who is a passionate advocate for productivity in the workplace, both in terms of um, really providing breakthrough solutions to help businesses achieve that, but also bringing a perspective as an entrepreneur and a builder of successful businesses and a strong, healthy, thriving culture that uh, has productivity as one of the foundations. John Darbyshire uh, has a successful track record in 2021. John and his team launched SmartSuite. It's a work management platform that manages any process from any industry on one platform. Wow. I can't wait to get in and see some of the dynamics in terms of the impact that that can make. In the year 2000, John founded Archer Technologies, which was an enterprise governance risk and compliance software solution giving business users, not developers, the ability to adapt software to their unique business requirements. So this is more than 20 years of really focusing on breakthrough transformation inside the workplace. And we're going to talk a little bit about John's experience in really growing that successful business and building a healthy culture. So John, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I I want to start out on a more personal level, obviously, uh, you've had uh, entrepreneur uh, in your blood. Uh, you've you've done this for quite a while and building these successful businesses. What really sparked or inspired you to take that path? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's something that was always in me from a young age. I was the was the kid on the block that was always looking to mow people's yards and paint their houses and just anything. And I don't know what drove me to do that. It was just kind of inside me to want to do things on my own and create something, you know, kind of special uh, from that, that I could call, you know, that was my own. And in my career, you know, I I started off working for just regular companies and ended up uh, at a young age being a partner at Ernst & Young running one of their global practices. And that's when I was really introduced to a lot of uh, Fortune 1000 companies, but I had the chance to meet the founders of those companies in a lot of cases, hear their stories. And that really inspired me to take the jump and leave Ernst and Young and to be 
to head down my own path with my own ideas that I'd kind of had in my head for years just to go make it happen. So with some of those relationships um, that came about that you were just mentioning, was there a mentorship aspect? So as you were thinking about this saying, wow, this is something I could do. Did you, did you tap into some of those relationships to kind of help you at the beginning really get going? I did not. It was more the storytelling of the founders that I was working with because every idea was a little different in, in different categories, but it was just the path that they took to get to that point to build a company you know, that, that customers love to use, whether it was a product or a service that was there. And that's, I think, what interested me the most was that process of taking that idea that you have and how do you build on that idea, bring in customers, but get to the point where it's a sustainable company, you know, over time, whether you take it public or keep it private, it didn't matter to me as much as, you know, I wanted to have great customers with a great product uh, in my case. It was really around the journey, what you're describing there, the, exactly. the process and the journey of getting to that successful destination. And of course, something that's really important on that journey is culture. We know it's so crucial to the success of any startup or any young company. And looking back on your experience at Archer, can you talk about the things that were critical for you to develop the right kind of thriving culture that, that led to a successful outcome there? Sure. Yeah, I, I had some great mentors early in my career for with companies that I worked with that I was able to kind of gain some insight into the things that they did in those environments. Um, and the first one, the first couple were smaller companies of less than 100 employees where the CEO was very involved in the day to day activity. And then when I went to Ernst & Young, I had the chance to kind of see that perspective from hundreds of thousands of people with an organization that is based on the productivity of the people and the culture. That's what sustains, you know, those large consulting firms over time. So as I started Archer, I kind of pulled from both of those perspectives to think about the, the first thing was I had to hire great people. Like the hiring process was yeah. so important to us that I just couldn't make mistakes. We didn't have a lot of, we were self-funded uh, for the first nine years of that company. We were profitable every year. Uh, along that way, but we didn't bring in a big pile of cash that allowed us just to go hire 50 people, you know, at one time. So we were pretty diligent in the hiring process. And, um, you know, our thought process was, you know, hire great people and great things will happen. And we had an entire kind of methodology and process around how we bring people in, how we interview them. If we, you know, they would come in mid morning and they would go through a series of interviews. If we thought that we liked that person, we immediately invited them to lunch with members from four other parts of the company. We went to the same restaurant, the same table every yeah. day for lunch with every person that we interviewed, just trying to see how they would interact with people outside of the group that they would be working in. And then if we knew that we were interested in that person, we were up front right then, typically on the car ride back. If it was just me and the candidate, I would say, we are very interested in you. I would tell them exactly why we are interested. And I would say, we're going to make an offer today. Here's what that offer is going to look like. I'll fine tune it, but you will have that in your hands tonight. And the thought process there was the culture started at that moment with the people that we wanted to hire and that we wanted them to feel like honored and respected in that hiring process that would lead them, you know, as a good starting point into the company. You know, John, that is so refreshing as you're sharing that approach because we hear stories, like even now, stories from 
really qualified candidates that are seeking new opportunities about the opposite of what you talk about, about the lack of transparency, about the lack of real-time communication in the job search. And you know, the idea of going into a interview room, it's this artificial environment, maybe it's a one-on-one, maybe it's a panel interview, but the idea of really getting that interaction in a more of a real world outside of an inter- room, uh, interview room right. type of format, it had to pay off, I would think, and not only in terms of candidate interest, but just how they felt about, you know, when they were hired coming into the company, just having a better and more loyalty because of that positive experience that they had. Yeah. For, for us, it was culture first. And then second was the skill set for the job uh, that was there. And we hired a lot of young people. Um, so they didn't have, you know, they, they didn't have 10 years, 15 years in their career when we were first hiring at Archer. So we needed to focus more on the on the quality of the person that kind of against the culture that we wanted to have, which was a kind of a customer first culture. Like we wanted them to be at ease with talking with customers, whether it was good times or bad times, but that they just had a good, a, a good way to present themselves that was easy, you know, inside the company and with customers. And I'll tell you a quick story here. So we had a candidate uh, coming in for an event planning um, position, and I was late to come in that office this morning, uh, that morning, and I was kind of running in the front door of the building, and someone was in the elevator and. It was just at that point where they the button was pushed and they could have just stepped back and let the elevator close. They had to actually make an effort to put their hand out and push yep. the button to let me come in, right? So I, I get into the elevator. Um, it was a, a young lady and we go up to our floor. We get off. She goes to the reception. And she walks in, you know, open the door and she walks in before me and she tells the receptionist that, hey, I'm interviewing for this event planning position. And in my mind, I already knew like, that's the type of person that yes. we want. like she took the time, you know, her name was Annie. She ended up being an, an amazing uh, candidate, you know, or, or employee for us. But that was part of the process it was like, we wanted to see how they treated other people. Uh, mm-hmm. If it was a uh, executives, we, especially if we hired people from out of town, we would like to have them, their, their spouse. And if they had kids, their kids come and we would go to, to, to dinner together. My wife and our kids would go as well. And we just wanted to see that interaction. And that was the, the first part of the culture at Archer was just those initial connections. It is interesting, isn't it? Just sometimes some of the smallest interactions or behaviors, right, can just be this indicator uh, in terms of what what the end result is going to be. So it's predictive, highly predictive. But that was sure. a great story that you shared there. And let's dive into this area of employee productivity. It's much talked about uh, companies all over the place are focusing a lot on it. Let's make our employees more productive, whether we're working together in the same physical environment, whether we're virtual, just so much attention to it. And with all that focus, you know, you would think, oh, there should be a script for how to achieve it. But there are some challenges, aren't there, John, out there? It's not as easy as it might appear to be. Yeah, it's not always as easy as just hire great people and they'll do great things, right? There's a lot of process that's kind of in between there that needs to be in place to really empower those people and to have them motivated towards the goals of the company. Um, I'm a big believer in OKRs, you know, key objectives and results where you set the key objectives for the company on a monthly, quarterly and yearly basis. And then that you take time to have all hands meetings where once a quarter where you communicate those 
you look back at the results from the prior quarter and you communicate, you know, where you're headed in the current quarter and uh -huh. evaluate different parts of the business. But you really do that so that your employees understand, like, where is the business heading? And then as part of the performance review process that happens each quarter, uh, I like to have the employees map back three to five, sometimes seven things that they're going to do in that quarter that map back to the objectives of the company. And that helps drive the productivity so that the first thing that they should think each day as they come in is, and what if is what I'm doing right now related to one of those key objectives in the company? If it's not, there's exceptions at times, but in some cases, if it's not, that's maybe not something you should be working on at that time. You should be working on something that relates back to the goals of the company. So I'm very big on each person in the company knowing how the role that they have each day maps back to, uh, you know, the overall goals of the company monthly and quarterly. And it really does start by having <clears throat> this clear definition at the company level in terms of what those objectives are. Cause I've been in some environments where there is a vision, there is a set of objectives, but sometimes in a language that isn't commonly understood by the employees, or it leaves room for interpretation. John, would right. you agree that, that that's something to be careful about in terms of the art of constructing those highest level objectives and goals so that there isn't that room for, for different interpretation? Yeah, I, I think that's what the all hands meeting is all about. You know, as you go through those goals and you answer questions from the people um, on your teams in that setting, and you have you try to build a setting that empowers the people to feel comfortable and really ask questions. And, you know, it, the best all hands meetings are really driven by question after question after question from the various teams. And at times that's it's not always fun because people are going to hit you with some really hard questions and maybe they're going to question the why in the strategy. And what I would always tell people as I answer the question was you might not agree with everything, but I'm going to tell you why we've made this decision and my thought process on how we got to this point and why we're going, you know, why we're doing this mm -hmm. particular item. And what I found personally was that that helped me better communicate to the team members and uh, even the executives, if they didn't always agree with, with where I was going, that at least they understood, you know, how I got to where I was at and the reasoning behind it. And I feel like that, that really helps motivate people around a vision when you can, uh, take the time to share that and answer those hard questions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The, the other thing I would imagine that you've experienced too is just changes in the environment. And so you can put all this time and effort into creating the plan and the priorities and the goals, but then the reality is you're out and the teams are out working, trying to support that. Things change, right? It's not exactly. static. And so that pivoting or the adaptability, flexibility, you, you've probably seen that come into play too. That could be a challenge. Yeah, I, I take the smaller the company, the more pivots, you know, typically you need to make the larger the company, you know, it, things tend to be set in stone for periods of time before they, you know, they move a little slower. So as an entrepreneur in thinking about that, you know, those things come up every day. And one of the first objectives that we would have, you know, that we have a smart suite and that we had in the early days at, at Archer was we follow the customer and we talk about what that means in that, you know, the customer knows what they need. They might not always know the best way to provide it to them in, if you have a product, right? So it's your job to think about how do I build the features into my product that support what the customer needs, but they know their processes and their needs. Um, and it was our job to understand and provide that to them. And then 
what we also found was that when we would allow one customer to talk to another customer about those ideas, that's when the engagement, you know, for us really went up from both the customers and for our product teams, understanding like what they really want when they could talk to another industry expert. And what that led to at Archer was we did uh, annual user group meetings that started with 20 people. American Express and Wells Fargo came to us and said, we want to talk to each other about these topics. We want you to host this event. It needs to be a couple of days. Uh, mm-hmm. The first event was about 20 people. Five years later, we had over 500 people that would show up for a three-day event where only customers uh, spoke and presented on their thoughts on different aspects of how they were using our product or in the processes they were solving. And um, that was key for us in really understanding the customer and allowed us to then you know, think about the product from a different perspective. Yeah, the power of just strengthening that customer relationship by really integrating them into your planning and your roadmap development process. I've seen that you know, when I worked at Cisco, uh, use of advisory boards, uh, really powerful stuff. Yeah, you know, a lot of companies say that, and it's kind of a buzzword. You see it on a lot of websites, but yeah. it's there, there's not a lot of companies that actually live it. And the ones that do, you know, you like Figma that just went, uh, was just purchased for a crazy number this week uh, by Adobe. Um, they're one of those companies, you know, that, that they listened and built, you know, they were number two player in that space and, you know, tried to come in and take on the incumbent. And then not only did they take them on, they just blew them away uh, that was there. And it was all because of, you know, the approach they took with listening. Well, certainly in the technology space, um, the, the quest for just, continuous, compelling innovation is front and center. Can you talk a little bit, John, about how elevating productivity can really have that direct impact around innovation efforts and and maybe share some examples? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the hardest part, especially for a young company, is to find ways to enable your teams to be as productive as they can. And it's really, you know, it, it, my point of view, there's two parts to that. You know, you got to hire great people, but you also have to build great processes uh, as well. And if one of, or both of those are not in sync, you're going to have a problem with productivity uh, that's there. And if you don't hire, you, know, you don't have to hire amazing people, but you have to hire the right people that's there. And sometimes you can't get past that. Like you'll, you're never going to be productive if you just have the wrong people running or, or in important uh, positions kind of in different departments and in small companies that are there. So um, as a, you know, founder CEO, you know, the hiring process to me was always the most important to get right. And then working with the people on those teams to build the process. So I, I knew what the process needed to be or what the results of the process needed to be, but I needed to give them input into how to get there so that it didn't become John's process. It was that team's process that they had mm-hmm. had, the chance to build and, and discuss. And to be honest, most of the time they came back to what I wanted, you know, if I would have just dictated it, but if I took an extra couple of days, it wasn't me dictating. It was, it was me, you know, spurring the conversation for them, them to understand what was needed and then them building the process around it. And for me, I, I love to do that in each part of the company. And I just feel that that leads to uh, better productivity across teams. And the second part that I'm a big fan of is just the agile methodology. A lot of companies use an agile approach to uh, software development. And that approach means that each morning, each team 
spends about 10 minutes doing a stand-up meeting where they say, here's what I did yesterday. Here's what I'm doing today. Here's any blockers that I have or any information that I'm waiting for from another, another team member. And I started this at Archer and we do that today at Smart Suite as well. But we each team takes 10 minutes in the morning and I attend most of those meetings myself. Uh, so the first hour and a half of my day is kind of involved with the different teams and they just have the chance to talk about it, ask me you know, specific questions if something's holding them up uh, inside of the company. And I feel like that it not it increases productivity because it increases motivation of the team members feeling like they they have a voice and a chance to actually talk about things that might be holding them back from getting their work done. Do you think there's been some revelations for some of your team members, you know, that maybe weren't as experienced going through that kind of an agile frequency and consistency of those 10 minute meetings, something that just kind of opened their eyes to say, wow, this is, this is more powerful than I would have thought in terms of just over time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's when new people join the organization and come in, you know, the first thing we hear back was that, like, it's, they just get in the know very quickly about everything that's going on. And in some cases, we actually have them attend standups from other departments so they can get to know the people and understand how maybe that work kind of flows to them kind of in their process um, as well. But I'm, I'm a huge believer in you know, not just doing it for specific groups, but everybody so that they have the chance to uh, you know, be more involved right from the beginning and learn from some of the more experienced people on the team uh, each day. Now, what a great onboarding tool you were just describing there, just getting that broader exposure um, right there at the front line every day. Yeah. Love it. Uh, yeah, so great. one of the things I know you've also talked about is that no code platforms represent the future of work where exactly is all that heading? What's your what's your position on that? Yeah, let me define what I mean by a no code platform first. But you know, a no code platform is is a piece of software that allows you to manage the work that you do each day using kind of drag and drop capabilities, and it has all of the features that are kind of built in. That in the past you would have to have a development team come and actually write code and develop for you it's available for the person that owns the process or managing the process to just build that process the way that they want. It could be a sales process, marketing, HR, it could be manufacturing process, it could be real estate. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's putting the power of, of kind of owning that in the hands of a non-developer. And the, the word that's being used more and more is a citizen developer, meaning I know what I want but I don't want to have to go to a development team to kind of build this software. So no code allows you in many cases in the matter of 20 minutes to an hour to model out processes that even four or five years ago could take months of development time, you know, to build for you. And you can have the same level of functionality in many cases, many more features and collaboration tools and reports and dashboards that you may not have even thought about if you were, you know, hiring a development team to do that. And, what I think is going to happen or what is happening over time is you're seeing more and more software products across all industries being built in a no-code fashion where you can um, tailor those processes to fit just you the way that you want to do business compared to having um, a, a process that's just hard-coded and that's the way you have to do it unless you hire a developer to make changes uh, to that process over time. And at Smart Suite, what we've tried to do is 
is combine what you would traditionally see in seven or eight different product solutions into a single platform, you know, from form builders and collaboration tools and project management tools and process tools and integration tools. Um, we've built all of that into one platform. So you don't need to have six or seven different subscriptions with products to get things done in your company, whether you're five users or 10,000 users, everything's available in that, you know, one core platform. Wow. And with that evolution, John, do you see a different or evolving mindset, you know, at a user level that, that comes into play in terms of really maximizing the power? Because it's it's very different maybe than than, than historically what they've had yeah. to uh, work with. Yeah. You, you see, it's all about putting the, the control and the power in the hands of the people that are actually doing the work uh, that, that's there. And, you know, nobody knows, you know, more than the person that's actually doing the work on how the process should actually, you know, be done or how it can be automated or more efficiencies can be built in. And that's all, you know, that's what no code and smart suite is all about is, is giving them that power to be able to do that and not have to go to a third party uh, to do it. And we have, it's interesting to see across our customer base, you know, we work with, you know, fortune 500 companies all the way to startups. And there's CEOs of very large companies that they jump in and configure our product for certain processes that they want in their company. That's just unheard of having a CEO do it, but they're, they have the expertise and they know the way that they want that particular process uh, to work. And when that happens, that's when we get excited because that's what no code is all about is empowering the people to do it you know, right when they want to do it. And think about how much more passionately that organization is going to really embrace and actually use that versus um, the software that was uh, purchased that, you know, an employee had no involvement with, or maybe a leader didn't have any involvement with directly. And it's just given to them, Hey, guess what? You've got access to this now. Well, that's a whole different scenario than when you can really roll up your sleeves. You played a role in really defining how that was going to get configured for your organization. I think that would be a huge difference. It, it is. And I, I think what we find is that typical organizations that we work with have six to eight different products that they kind of use in their company or their employees use day to day. You know, they may have something just for sales. They have another product for HR, another maybe for product development. And they're all good products. But when a, a new employee comes in, they have to be trained across all these different products. And maybe Slack and email is included in there as well. And then when you offboard them, that's when part of the problems begin to happen is, so where is all the data at that this person has worked on for the last two or three years, right? Maybe it's in four or five different products. They have different logins to different products versus a single platform. You have a single way to authenticate people, onboard people once they have access to things. When you offboard them, all the data is still right there. Um, you just have to turn off their login, turn on the login for the next person. You can see it. So that's the that's the power of no code platforms that I think you'll continue to see in the future is just this ability to manage what people are looking at now as point solutions more in the context of of a series of processes or solutions inside of a company. Mm -hmm. Well, let's shift gears a bit and let's talk about impact through leadership. And obviously, uh, the leaders in an organization play a huge role in achieving sustainable growth from your perspective. And you've lived this John in, in growing these young companies uh, over time, what are the keys for exceptional leadership? 
Yeah, I, I, I'd say this to so many entrepreneurs. You know, after we built and, and sold Archer Technologies, I had the chance to invest in about 400 startups. And so I've had the chance to work with a, 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 lot, of, a lot of companies that have been done just okay, some that didn't make it, and then some that were just exceptional uh, that were there. And for me, it all came down to the people. You know, the the people that the initial leader surrounded him or herself with played a big role in the long term success of that organization. And, you know, with young companies, especially with young founders in their early 20s, the, their network is not as big and they tend to hire friends from college, you know, people that they know, put them into roles. And in some cases that worked out fantastic. In other cases, in a year or two, when people needed to specialize in different departments, you know, I needed a, a sales team and a marketing team and a product team. Those people didn't have the, the skill set or the experience in those areas. And it really hurt the growth of the company uh, that was there. So I'm a big proponent of broadening that network as fast as you can, regardless of how young that you might be. Really make sure that you hire people thinking that I, I need these people for the next three to five years, not the next one to two years. Uh, that's there. And then those companies, you know, have a better, a better chance to make it than uh, the ones that don't take that approach. Yeah. And, then, and, uh, and I'm sure, sure it's a continuous assessment, apply the learning and, you know, as you go forward, right, you're, you're not going to be perfect out of the gate and, and not chasing perfection, but the idea of just adaptation through learning as you went along. Right. That, that, that early aptitude, that technical aptitude that people have and the ability to read other people uh, that's there is very important for, for the first group of people that you're, that you're hiring. What, what happens in so many companies is that, you know, the people that you initially hired that help build the, you know, the software or the service for the first couple of years that were just good at jumping in and getting stuff yeah. done are not necessarily the best people when it comes to, I have a very formal process now and I need to follow that process every time. It's, it's rare that you, when I say rare, maybe 20, 30% of the people that can operate in both of those worlds versus they, they're just superstars in one or the other uh, that's there. Yeah, that's spot on. That's, that's true. Not only from the top leadership, because sometimes the, the it's the founders don't necessarily transition well to be the operating CEOs, but you're saying even across all the different functions, some of the employees, what works well in those early days doesn't necessarily make it the right group of uh, team members for when you're scaling and, and just getting to another level in terms of maturity. Absolutely. I, I saw that with firsthand at Archer, we sold to EMC and we were about a $40 million a year business when we sold. We had about 200 uh, employees. EMC had 140,000 employees. And um, they brought a different perspective to how to grow a business through sales than what we had had in place. They weren't builders. They acquired, I think in, in the three years prior, like close to 40 companies that they had acquired and brought into EMC. So they were you know, really good at analyzing and building and integrating companies in. And then they were really good on the operation side and the people on the operation side that they hired were probably not the people that could go build those companies from scratch. Like they were very process centric. And if you were outside the lines of that process, it really bothered them versus the entrepreneurs that maybe helped build those companies. That was something that happened every day. You know, they were, they were used to pivoting, like we talked about earlier mm -hmm. on a frequent yeah. basis. 
and not following that plan to the to the T, you know, three months at a time before we would change course. Yeah, yeah, so true. So, John, what's the best piece of business advice you have ever received? Yeah, you know, I, I received this from a partner at, at Bain Capital right after I sold uh, Archer Technologies and was starting to invest in these different companies. I, I just thought that, you know, I, I wanted to have the chance to work with more entrepreneurs. And I, I don't think I ever thought we'd invest in 400 companies, but it just started happening. And as I went back and I was talking with the partners in Bain that had invested in, in Archer and a whole host of other companies that had all done really well, I just said, you know, what's the best piece of advice that, that you have for me? And they said, invest in the people, not the technology. And I'm like, that just absolutely makes no sense. Like, you know, I look yeah. at every deal based on how cool the, the product or service is and make my decisions based on that. And I didn't follow that advice, but I, I learned very quickly over the next year that they were absolutely right. Like it starts with the people, right? And you have to, there's certain pedigrees of people that tend to do really well as entrepreneurs. Those are people that ha- are experts in certain areas. They've, I don't know if you've read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, with your 10,000 hours of time that you have in a particular discipline. But yep. they were really big on that, that they knew that that space. And because they had that knowledge, they could figure it out. The technology would get to where it needed to be. It's because they had the knowledge. But it was on the other side. If if I just had a cool product, but I didn't really have the the knowledge in that space yet, it was always going to be cool, but maybe I didn't bring in customers. So I, I was able to take that advice and to really start thinking more about the people, the background, the experience they have, and still look at the technology, but I look at the people first and then the, sec- the technology second. Mm-hmm. Well, you've obviously been a very forward looking, forward thinking leader over time. And at this point, when you look ahead to the future, what makes you optimistic? You know, what? what's optimistic and exciting is this new concept of working remotely. Um, you know, for businesses and like SmartSuite, we have people in nine different countries that we interact with every day. And that wouldn't have necessarily happened five years ago. And we, we thought it was pretty unique three years ago and then COVID hit and a lot of people are, are doing it. But the advantage and what's exciting about it is you can go find the best people or person for the job anywhere in the world. And you're not limited to way I had done things in the past where you have an office and you typically hire within 30 mile radius of that office to bring people in, which works uh, a lot as well. But by having the chance to hire people in so many different countries, it brings different perspectives to the team. It makes it's more interesting for the team. People are building relationships with people they'd never thought that they would build relationships before. It's just more fun and exciting. So that's what gets me excited about SmartSuite is just the impact that we're having and the relationships that we're building on a global basis as opposed to uh, in a particular geography. Yeah, it is kind of a leveling of the playing field, isn't it, now with just the ability to to have that broader hiring and it just changes the whole dynamic in terms of talent acquisition. It, it does. You just think about, especially with millennials and even Gen Zers more than that, you, you know, they think about work as something that they need to do to support the fun things that really run their life. And they don't want to be constrained to one city for a long period of time. 
right? And it's frequent inside of Smart. So we have people that have moved not just to different cities, but to different countries while they've been working with this. And they're just happier and more motivated. And it feels like, you know, work is a part of their life instead of the part of their life. You know, like in my generation where I went to the same place each day for these hours and then I came home, you know, they're really mixing the work and the personal kind of together at the same time. And for us, as long as they put in the time and they get the work done and their their uh, productivity is where we need it to be, we, we really don't care where they live. And I didn't feel that way five years ago. No. Like I was completely on the other side until it, it just kind of snuck up on us and happened. And now my first thought is I'm going to try to find the best person for this role. I don't care about the geography of where they're at. Sometimes I care about the time zones, but I don't care about the geography. Yeah, you and and so many that have just literally just re-looked at this and, and the, the whole reshaping of the thinking. A great example of that. So as we start wrapping up our conversation, John, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are looking to elevate their team's performance and increase productivity? Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, productivity is only as good as the processes you implement and the people you hire. Like it comes down to me, it's as simple as those two things. And if one or both of those are not right, like you, you're not going to see the level typically of productivity that you would want to have uh, that's there. So there's a lot of other levers and things that you could look at, but I think that those, those two are the, are the most important. John, thanks again for joining and sharing your perspective, not only on elevating productivity within an organization, but also successfully building healthy cultures success in the marketplace, all driven by a focus on the customer. Dan, it's been a pleasure. I I appreciate you having me on your podcast. And a reminder to everyone to please continue to give us feedback on the podcast. You can go out and rate and review very easily on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast. Appreciate that feedback. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.